So Ecclesiastes 2 verse 17. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then he must leave it all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors with under the sun? All his, day, all his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Amen. You'll find Ecclesiastes there, folks, on page 668 and 669. Really would be good to have that open today because um, I'm actually going to be looking at a good bit more than the, the short part that Emma read, so um, you'd be able to follow better what we're saying if you had that open before you. I'm the king of the world. Anybody know? Who's that? Titanic. Titanic. The character played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, was he called Jack, I think? And I think, if I'm right, whenever he went up to receive the Oscar uh, for Titanic, James Cameron, the director, repeated that moment. He shouted that he, too, was the king of the world. We don't have so many kings in our culture these days. It's not the way the world works politically. There still are a few. Uh, even those that there are are often figureheads uh, to elected democracies and so on. We don't have our Alexander the Greats or our Louis the Fourteenth, the megalomaniacs who try to draw all the wealth and all the power in the world to themselves. We don't have many kings but probably we have more people than ever who want to live like a king. Advertisers promise us the world in exchange for our souls. Uh, the worlds of music and sport and so on provide us with endless role models of people who show us what life is like when you make it and when you get to the top. Uh, and the TV and movie industry gives us uh, an endless uh, range of fantasies to choose from of uh, lives that we might 
be able to live. So we're not actual kings, but we aspire in our own ways to be the king of the world on our own terms. Last week we started this new series studying the the book of Ecclesiastes today, and in today's passage, the, the teacher, Kohelet, he has us playing a king, or he's playing a king. But before we come to that, let's remind ourselves very quickly where we started last week. The teacher confronted us with the big question there. If you can see it, chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Uh, and what he does very quickly in those first 11 verses is he, looks, he observes nature. He has a look at nature, and he shows us that in the whole created order, the sun, the wind, the waters, they've been established on a, on a sort of a cyclical, repetitive, and seemingly endless pattern. And the point that he wants to make is, in light of, of those huge, uh, repetitive, endless patterns of nature, human activity is fleeting. It's inconsequential. There's a lot of chat, isn't there, about making your mark on the world. Well, right at the start of the book, the, the writer tells us, no chance. <laughs> you're not going to make any mark in this world. And, and we reflected on this. By the time you're dead, nobody will remember you. We summarized last week's passage, uh, those opening verses in Ecclesiastes this way. We said that life is repetitive, it's elusive, and it's short. This morning as we go into, pick up there from chapter 1, verse 12, right through to the end of chapter 2, the teacher is going to keep revisiting this subject about what can we gain from our labor under the sun If he was talking about, if he pointed us to nature in those first 11 verses, have a look at nature, have a look at how the world works. Now he's going to do a different thing and he's going to point us to human experience. We've already said that he's going to do that by playing the role of a king. So he tells us verse 12 of chapter 1, that he's going to look at the world from the perspective of the king over Israel in Jerusalem. What he does here is he takes on a Solomon like persona. And he's going to educate his congregation by taking them on a, a voyage of discovery, if you like. He tells them, chapter 2, verse 3, I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And then he spends the rest of, of chapter 1, the remaining part of chapter 1 and the, the whole of chapter 2, he, he sort of runs a few um, existential experiments, we could call them I've tested a couple of the big experiences, a couple of the big human experiences, wisdom, pleasure, and here's what I've found. He begins with wisdom. He enrolls in a PhD in philosophy at the University of Jerusalem. And we're not surprised by that because he is, after all, the teacher. Look at what he says, chapter 1, verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What what is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, 
I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more the knowledge, the more the grief. So wisdom doesn't give him what he was looking for. In fact, after describing this life of a headlong pursuit of wisdom, Ecclesiastes tells us that rather than than making him happier, that bringing him fulfillment, he actually feels sadder. Talks about sorrow. Wisdom, a growing understanding of life, it can actually serve to open our eyes to the the complexities of life, some of the ways in which it's hard to find meaning. It it maybe would show us, for example, what we learned last week, that life is repetitive, that it's short, that it's elusive. He's tried to find his meaning and his joy in intellectual pursuits, and it's failed. Wisdom's bubble has been burst. As I was thinking about that this week, it sort of struck me I don't struggle, maybe some of you do, I don't struggle from overintelligence or too much wisdom that makes me unhappy. I don't think I do. Uh, So I had to research this, I had to Google it. Um, In an article, Why Intelligent People Fail to Be Happy, an author offered a number of different reasons, including the following. Intelligent people overanalyze things They have high standards. They're too hard on themselves. They lack deep communication and understanding. And they struggle with accepting reality. I found it interesting, particularly what the author said under this fifth idea, that if if you're particularly intellectually wired, you might struggle to accept reality. The author says, people with high IQs never cease to seek something bigger, a pattern, a meaning, a purpose. The deepest and dreamiest of them don't stop there. Their restless mind and imagination don't let them just relax and enjoy the good things of life. I guess that reality with its trivialities is just too boring for them. Such people crave for something fantastic, idealistic, eternal, and of course never find it in the real world. That, that, that sentence there, their restless mind and imagination don't let them just relax and enjoy the good things of life. Interesting. We shouldn't be surprised by these findings in modern articles about intelligence and happiness because God's told us this. Two and a half millennia ago, the, the teacher told us the more the knowledge, the more the grief. So the teacher's had a look at wisdom and he's seen the limitations that lie there. The teacher then runs a second experiment. He hits the town. He pursues just hedonism, pleasure. Read with me, chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter 
I said, is foolish, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Wine and folly, it sounds like freshers week at university. The teacher is going to try a, a different way of life. By the way, the Hebrew word translated here as pleasure isn't a, a bad word. The teacher isn't talking only about things that are questionable or things that are forbidden. He's talking about joy and gladness. So joy and gladness, they're not bad in themselves. It's whenever we make pursuing joy and gladness an end in itself that we're inclined to run into trouble. When we talk about looking for the next thrill or, or the next high, that we find that these things end up coming up short. Verses 4 to 11, the teacher spells out in detail the nature of his experiment. I'm not quite sure whether he's telling us a little bit more about what he's told us in verses 1 to 3, or whether it's a whole new idea. He talks a bit about the work that he pursues, fulfilling this purpose of pursuing his own pleasure. I undertook some great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Sounds like grand designs or something, doesn't it? Or the Chelsea Flower Show, having the, the perfect garden. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone else in Jerusalem. That just means he was wealthier. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. Does that remind you of anyone in the biblical story? As we've said already, it is supposed to. Koheleth is playing the Solomon character here. You read this, and, and if, you, if you read, by the way, in 1 Kings verse, chapters 3 to 11, you'd see the life of Solomon spelt out there, and it, it would really, these verses would resonate with the, the narrative at that point. Solomon was a king in Israel who built a whole lot of buildings, who amassed a whole lot of wealth, and who had lots of women. If anyone should have found pleasure in life by pursuing pleasure, Surely, Solomon would have. So what's the teacher's conclusion on this second experiment on, on pleasure and work? Well, it's a mixed conclusion, actually. We'll have to read carefully. He has found some joy. Look at verse 10. He's found joy in his work. My heart took delight in all my work. And this joy, he says, was the reward for all my labor. So on the one hand, Doing a good day's work, we can find joy and job satisfaction, and that's a good thing. 
On the other hand, his work and the, and the pursuit of pleasure is meaningless. Verse 11, when I surveyed all that my hand had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I was trying to work out where the balance lies here or how this works. It seems to me that while he was on the inside of his experiment, he did find some joy. There are ways of experiencing pleasure. There are ways of finding satisfaction in their work. But as soon as we step out of it and we analyze what we've done in the cold light of day, we say, well, well I haven't really gained anything. I'm none the better off for all my work and all my experiences. It's all a waste of time. Remember what he's trying to do here. Chapter 2, verse 3. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Life, we've been told, is short. It's repetitive. If, if that's true, then, then how am I going to find meaning in, in this short, repetitive, and elusive life? The pursuit of pleasure and of work have disappointed him, much like the pursuit of wisdom. They don't seem in themselves to be a worthwhile pursuit for these short lives that were given. Think about it for a second, just to check that we're persuaded. Because the advertisers are telling us something different. The advertisers are telling us that with a, a bigger house, a bigger car, a bigger holiday and a bigger TV, we're going to be happier. That, that's what they're telling us. Thousands of times a day, we're stimulated to believe that narrative. But what is it that happens when we get the bigger house? We discover that we have more property to maintain and insure, and we're not necessarily any happier. The bigger TV it's still a few hundred channels of rubbish, no matter how wide the screen is. The faster car, does that just increase your frustration when you spend your life sitting at red traffic lights? These things that we chase after, they don't deliver. In verses 12 to 16 of chapter 2, there's a, a bit of a change of direction. We've, we've had these sort of thought experiments, these experience experiments. Ecclesiastes returns here to the subject of wisdom. And what he says about wisdom is, is really quite balanced. In case you've heard him say, you know, wisdom's a waste of time, he says, wisdom on the one hand's good. I saw that wisdom's better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. So it's, it's definitely better to be wise than not. But on the other hand, in the same breath, he goes on to say that he came to realize that the same fate overtakes both the wise and the fool. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man 
like the fool, will not be remembered. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So while it's better to be wise than to be a fool, we mustn't fool ourselves. Wise people die, and they die statistically just as much as foolish people do. And wise people are forgotten just as foolish people are. Wisdom can't make us happier in this life, and it won't solve the problem of our death. So we're coming towards the close of our chapter and this sermon. Kohelet's been trying to work out to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. He's shown us that wisdom, pleasure, and work don't work. He's burst all of their bubbles. And in our article about why intelligent people fail to be happy, I want to come back to that sentence again. The writer told us that intelligent people fail to be happy because their restless mind and imagination don't let them relax and enjoy the good things of life. What about the pleasure seeker? Isn't it true that in their restless pursuit of the next thrill and the next high, they too fail to relax and enjoy the good things of life? What about the workaholic with his projects or her projects? In their endless pursuit of achievement and promotion, they fail to relax and enjoy the good things of life. We have one thing in common in this very diverse bunch that we are. We all want to enjoy life. When you get up in the morning, underlying your first conscious thought is this thought, how can I enjoy today? All through the day, you're wondering, how can I enjoy my life? You want to enjoy your life, and God wants you to enjoy life. That's why he's given us the book of Ecclesiastes, would you believe? That's why we call our series, Enjoy Your Life. But how do we do it? How do we find joy in life? I don't know if you noticed we probably weren't ready for it after two chapters of pessimism and maybe cynicism. The last few verses of chapter two, it's like a ray of light bursting into this dark scene. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can find enjoyment? The man, to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. There is happiness to be had. Who knew? Certainly not after the first couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes. But where do we find it? 
There's a lot going on here. I want to spend the last two or three minutes. Right throughout this chapter, we've been in search of the good life. Chapter 2, verse 1, Koheleth says he wants to find out what is good. Verse 3, to see what is worthwhile. In both of those verses, there's a Hebrew word, not always visible to us in the English, the Hebrew word tov. It's a great word. I should try to get you to learn about three Hebrew and three Greek words, all the best ones. Tov is one of the good ones. Here's where Tov lands on the biblical scene. Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember when God creates the world? At the end of each day, he said, it is good. Well, he says, it is Tov. So he creates the world and he says, it is Tov. It is Tov. It is Tov. It's all very Tov. Why do I tell you that? Well, because we can't see it in the English translation, but the word tov occurs four times in the last three verses of Ecclesiastes chapter two. It's good, it's good, it's really, really good. What is life as God created it? Eating a good meal with friends. a great glass of wine or a cool pint on a hot day, finding satisfaction in a good day's work. That's good. That's really, really good. After running his failed experiments with wisdom, with pleasure, and with work, we finally are beginning to look and find where the good life might be found. It turns out that life is meant to be enjoyed, not mastered. We find life when we stop trying to create a world of our own and find ourselves living in the world, the beautiful, good world that God has created. Don't try to control life, except that he is in control. Don't try to create meaning, receive all the good things that he has already given, that he's already created. Don't try to be the king of the world. Let him do that and find what a beautiful thing it is to live under his rule. I'm reminded of a, a phrase, a turn of phrase from Marilyn Robinson at this point, the, the author that I've maybe mentioned a few times. It's been used recently to, to give a title to a collection of her essays. She talks about the givenness of things. What I'm asking you today with the writer of Ecclesiastes is to open your mind and heart to the givenness of things. It's all a gift. We don't create this life. He does. It's given. We simply receive 
and enjoy. Let's pray. Lord, those opening couple of chapters of this book, they have been challenging more than a meal to nourish us. It's been more like, it felt more like a bath to wash us clean, to bathe our imaginations, to wash some of the muck away. Lord, thank you for this beautiful invitation at the end of our passage, at the end of our time together, to rediscover ourselves as your sons and daughters living in a really, really good world that you have created where we can receive life from you. Lord, there's a lot in this world that's broken, that's fallen. There's a lot in us that's in need of your grace and your forgiveness. But draw us back to this simple truth that life's a gift and help us to receive it. Amen. We're going to sing a, a wee song just now. It's one that allows us to remember our finiteness and the, the eternal nature of God. We are a moment. You are forever. The stewards will lift the offering while we sing.